0: That's BetterHELP.com.
2: Let me paint you a picture. We're in Damariscotta, Maine. We're on a river about 15 miles upstream from where it flows into the ocean. It's very maine While you were talking, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I think I just saw an osprey
3: go over. Oh yeah, there's plenty of ospreys around here. Yeah. you might not even see a bald eagle if you are lucky.
2: That's Arthur Spees. He's Maine's state archeologist. We're walking along a path that leads down to the water. Frankly, it looks fairly unremarkable. So, and this is sort of like, it looks like it used to be an orchard or something, looks like some fruit trees. Yeah, an
3: apple hole overgrown apple trees. Yeah.
2: But, you know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't someplace special. There's a reason that I'm here with an archeologist.
3: Oh, I see, oh
2: wow. (laughs) I say I was not expecting to get so up
3: close with him. That's what's
2: left. In front of where we're standing, there's a little brook running down the hill into the river. The water has eroded layers of earth, and along the bank of this little creek, where you would expect to see just brown, bare, naked earth, instead there's this jagged wall of shockingly white shapes. It's about as tall as a man, and from a distance you might think, are those rocks? But as you get closer, you see that no, it's not rocks. This shining, pearlescent riverbank is actually made up of thousands of oyster shells piled on top of each other, layer after layer. Arthur has actually dug down into these shells all the way down to the bottom.
3: It's about six feet deep at the deepest. Oyster shells, six feet deep.
2: But what's really amazing is this pile used to be much, much deeper.
3: There was an even larger pile of shells that went from the river the river back to where those pine trees are. are. So it's about, about what? About 100 yards. 100 yards, yeah. And it was 15 or 18 feet deep at the deepest.
2: 15 to 18 feet deep. So deep that you could stand with a friend standing on your shoulders, and the two of you still might not be able to reach the top. And it was as big as a football field. Arthur has calculated how many shells that was.
3: And it came out to... 150,000 cubic feet of oyster shells. That's more than
2: 300 dump truckloads of shells. And some of these were like no oyster you've ever seen.
3: There are some oysters that are 15 inches long, or 18 inches long. And the meat inside would have been the size of your your palm.
2: Oyster shells the length of your forearm. Think of how much that would have run at a fancy-schmancy seafood bar. So... What gives? Where did this mysterious pile of oyster shells come from? This week on Outside In, we're bringing you something we call 10 by 10. This is where we look very closely at a very small space. Today, we're looking at the second largest intact pile of oyster shells in the United States. Because that's right, there's actually more than one of these things. The one we're looking at is called the glidden midden.
3: Great word, by the way, midden. It's, yeah, it's a Danish word, I guess, originally that's been adopted into English. It sounds like what it is. (laughs) A
2: midden, as in an ancient trash heap. And glidden, as in glidden point, the name of the place where this shell heap is. Through this midden, what have we learned about the people who used to live on and beside it? And what can this place tell us about the very tricky and occasionally impossible science of archaeology? Just to start by stating what might be obvious to some people, but not everyone, yes, these oyster shells were left behind by people.
3: We know from the archaeological artifacts in the site that the first people who camped here and started to harvest oyster shells on this particular spot did so about 2,200 years ago, and they stopped for some reason sometime around 6 or 7 or 800 years ago. So 1,500 to 1,700 years of pitching shells onto a pile. Pitching shells onto a big pile.
2: And it wasn't just one big pile. There used to be two of them. There's the glidden midden, which is still around. But on the other side of the river, there was the whaleback midden, which was even bigger, but now it's gone. Arthur and I are actually standing on the whaleback side of the river. So now... If you've got two giant piles of oyster shells on either side of a river, the logical assumption is that there used to be a lot of oysters in this spot, which we think there were. But beyond that, who were the people? pitching those oyster shells.
4: Well, we could make the assumption that the language would be pretty similar to today's modern languages of the Wabanaki um, underneath the Algonquian linguistic umbrella.
2: This is Chris Sokalexis, the tribal historian of the Penobscot Nation and an archaeologist. The Penobscot are one of five tribes in Maine that collectively refer to themselves as the Wabanaki or Easterners. So what was life like for these folks?
4: That's a tough question to answer. Okay, so it's
2: hard to paint a really broad picture because indigenous people were incredibly diverse and composed of smaller groups with very different lifestyles. Some lived on the seacoast year-round. Some were moving up and down rivers. Each had their rhythms
4: that helped them to find food. You know, you'd have to say there are similarities, you know, coming from a hunter-gatherer uh, groups. But as they split off into kinship groups... Um, each family would have their own certain, maybe mini customs and rituals. But, um, again, when, when the larger aggregation gets together, you know, they share that common bond. Which is what makes this pile so amazing.
2: It's so big, people figure that it couldn't possibly have come from just one
4: group. Yeah, that is a pretty significant site. Um, you could see that as a large aggregation area. A large aggregation area. That's archaeologists speak for a
2: place where lots of people meet. So how do we learn more about the people that met there? One way to answer that question, dig. And so what did you find?
3: Mostly oyster shells, Uh, surprisingly. Uh, And some pottery fragments and some charcoal and a few fish bones. Not a lot.
2: If you want to reconstruct what life was like for the people who ate all these oysters, this is basically all you've got. It might not sound like much, and it isn't really, but it's a heck of a lot more than you might get in a lot of other places, and there's a reason why. In huge chunks of the world, in the eastern U.S., Europe, Russia, Central America, and northern South America, Southeast Asia and Central Africa, the soil is actually slightly acidic.
5: Almost nothing is left besides the stone tools. All, all the uh, bone refuse just dissolves.
2: That's Bruce Bork, by the way, who is chief archaeologist at the Maine State Museum before he retired. So cast yourself back to high school biology. What are shells and bones made out of? Calcium. And what is calcium on the pH scale? Basic. The opposite of acid.
5: But the shells neutralize the soil acids, make the soil sweet or raise the pH above 7. And so bone is preserved. And we, we love these sites for that reason.
2: So just from the beginning, what little we can know about the past here, we know thanks to the shells. And actually, from just some bones and some shells, we know more than you might think. For one, fish bones. What kind of
3: fish? Um, the, the fish bones that are in here are mostly alewives, and they run up here in the spring, early in the spring.
2: Another clue, deer teeth.
3: People who were living here were hunting deer when they could, and same deal. We can can tell when the deer were killed. Just like
2: the fish, the deer teeth suggested springtime. Then there are those oyster shells.
3: So every oyster has a little hinge on it, at one end, and they grow faster during some seasons of the year and slower during other seasons of the year, and if you get your microscope right, you can actually read the, how many years the oyster's grown. It's like looking at rings in a tree. And they're all harvested in the late winter or the spring. It fits with the fish bones. That's where we got that idea. So you put it all together, and it seems
2: like people gathered by the banks of this river right around the time of the year that the alewives would return from the ocean and swim upstream to lay their eggs. This time of year is often known as the hungry time, As winter slogs towards its finish, any food you manage to save up during the summer and fall is long gone, and no new edible plants are starting to come up yet. So this is when it would be really great to be able to just come to a place where you can find oysters the size of your fist just sitting at the bottom of the river. Except, one downside. This is April, or May, in Maine.
3: It wasn't very warm. They didn't have wetsuits. They didn't have wetsuits. They didn't have a hundred... Horsepower Evinrudes and heavy anchors. They had birch bark canoes.
2: So as near as Arthur Spees can figure, every spring, as the snow melted and the river swelled, people would gather, take their canoes and paddle way out into the middle.
3: There are some funny looking stone tools. They look like um, gouges or axes. Uh, I think they might have put those on long poles and used, used them to chip out a bunch of oysters and then Grab them and pull them up and put them in the
2: basket. The people who were doing this, they came from all over the place.
4: Hundreds of miles, if not more. Like Moosehead Lake area, Munsongan um, area, we also are finding evidence in shell middens that the stone to make the tools is coming from far away as Pennsylvania, possibly Ohio, Labrador. And this went on for
2: centuries. Way down at the bottom of the pile, the very first shells to get tossed onto the ground were about 2,000 or 2,200 years old. On the top of the pile, there were pottery fragments that were maybe 6 or 800 years old.
3: When you, when you do the math, it works out to about 3 cubic yards a year on average. Now that's a half a dump truck.
2: And so the pile grew. A few shells at a time. Every year when the people came back to set up camp, sometimes they would move in right on top of the shells from years ago.
3: Once you pile up a bunch of shells, the soil is well-drained, and so you're basically building your own campsite.
2: All through the heap of shells, there are black stripes that streak through the center that show where people set up camp on top. Year after year of people building campsites and fire rings on top of centuries-old campsites. Generation after generation, one on top of the next. That, as near as we can figure, is where this pile came from. Many cycles of people coming to feast during the hungriest part of the year. It's a nice story. But there are some hints that this place was something more because archaeologists found some things here that just don't quite seem to fit. For example, human remains.
4: You find a lot of shell middens with no burials. But the ones with, with the burials, the middens with the burials, it's they were put there you know special they were there for a reason
2: this is where we should point out that indigenous people and archaeologists haven't always been on the same page when it comes to digs like this put yourself in the shoes of the descendants of the people who used to live on the Damascata river what if somebody just dug up your great 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 grandmother's body without permission and then refused to give it back As you can understand, a lot of people are pretty angry about this kind of thing. And how to make it right continues to be a big debate, even today. Regardless, finding remains in this shell heap is a clue that maybe this was more than just a pile of trash. And we'll hear about that after a break. Welcome back. Today we're learning about two giant piles of oyster shells up in Maine and what they have taught us about the people who used to live here. Now, not a ton of people have studied these particular shell mittens, but one of them is Deb.
1: This is unusual, but more importantly, they're unusual for what's in them. For the amount of shell, usually we see a lot of stone tools, we see bone tools, um, arrowheads, um, a whole cluster of different kinds of artifacts. Well, in these sites, there really are only one or two stone projectile points that have ever been found.
2: Deb Wilson was an archaeologist for around 20 years, and she always had this feeling that apart from being a really big pile of shells, there was something weird about this spot.
1: Things were a little unusual. There were a lot of bare bones, but they weren't the kind of bones that you would see. There were a lot of bare scapulas.
2: That's the shoulder blade.
1: And so not random bare bones, but all one kind of bone and
2: scapulas in some tribes in the kind of nearby canadian maritimes were and are used in this thing called scapula mancy
1: basically what what often people did with scapulas you know they're flat um so they would they heat them on a fire and interpret the way they crack well, it might be wanting to decide where to go hunting and they would find paths in the cracks in the scapulas
2: And there's more. There's an account by an elder from the Penobscot written in 1893 that says this spot has been set aside for the old and the infirm. Also, there's this arrowhead she found.
1: A single projectile point, which is kind of a really small thing to base a whole theory on.
2: It came from a whole different culture.
1: Out in the Ohio Valley. And those guys were mound builders.
2: The mound builders cremated and buried their dead, under elaborate piles of earth. So Deb thinks that maybe, just maybe, there's something else going on here. Like maybe some folks from the mound-building culture migrated here at some point and in just a few generations built and deliberately sculpted these massive shell piles. Remember, there were two piles. There's the Glidden Midden, but on the other side of the river there was the one called the Whaleback Midden because it looked like the profile of a massive Glittering white whale. Deb thinks maybe this was intentional.
1: And so, and so, to you, it's it's like almost like a monument. It really does. I mean, it feels like a really special place.
2: This is what happens when you're looking for clues in a two thousand year old pile of oyster shells. To some archaeologists, this big pile of shells is just a big pile of shells, a trash heap that built up slowly and unintentionally. To others, this pile could be something symbolic, something sacred.
5: There there are scraps of folklore that talk about things that are white and pilgrimages to places where things are white, and that's all true. So who's right? Well,
2: turns out the shells can only tell us so much.
5: So, you know, those ideas are out there. Uh, it is possible. It is maybe even plausible, but probably unprovable.
2: So, we may not know why people started hucking shells here, but it seems fairly clear that they stopped centuries ago. So, what happened? Why did it stop? And why are there so many freaking oysters here in the first place? Well, there's one explanation that answers all all of those questions. And to understand it, you have to remember that the world didn't always look the way it looks now.
3: If you want to find the coastal campsites of people who were here 10,000 years ago, you have to go offshore and you're in about 150 to 200 feet of water. Inconvenient. Very inconvenient.
2: The oceans have been slowly rising ever since the last ice age. So back before people began leaving their oyster shells here, the river looked very different. Back then, the ocean was farther away, and the tides didn't used to reach all the way upstream. So the water was lower. Today, just downstream of these two piles of oyster shells, the river runs over a strip of rocks. And back then, when the river was lower, those rocks formed rapids. But then, as sea levels rose, high tides started to get higher. And suddenly, during high tides, the rapids would reverse direction. And two things happened. For one, now, high tide was sweeping oyster larvae, which just drift on the current into this part of the river. But, for two, the fast water was still keeping out their main predators, a snail called the oyster drill. So this little barrier, this little rib of rocks and rips, could have allowed a huge, massive oyster reef to form big enough to draw bands of people every spring from hundreds of miles around, walking or paddling in canoes to eat oysters. But the world doesn't sit still. And as the centuries passed and the seas continued to rebound, eventually that two-way waterfall started to flood out. And bit by bit, the oyster drills could have begun to slither their way through. And so, over many years, that massive reef started to shrink. Until, by our best guess, about six or eight hundred years ago, the middens stopped getting any bigger.
4: With the declining oysters, you know, you kind of have to think, you know, why, why would people go back if there's no more oysters in that area?
2: This is a nice, tidy little story, right? The rapids, the big reef, the snail drill. There's just one problem.
5: But it's never been proven. It was just an idea that was published in a paper many years ago, and no one's disproved it, but it's plausible but unproven.
2: I mean, come on. Can't we just have one nice, simple story? There's another hypothesis, which is that indigenous people were actually continuing to add to the pile all the way up through contact with colonial Europeans. And in reality, it was shipyards built upstream, dumping sawdust into the river that put an end to the oysters in this spot. And then there's Deb Wilson, who thinks that the piles actually stopped growing a really long time ago and that they only took a few generations to make. In the fog of time, you see things that might... Be there, you just never quite know. Do you think this is the, thing, the kind of thing that you can ever really know the answer as to what went on here? Or do you, or do you prefer to just sort of say, here's some ideas uh, and maybe we'll just have to let it be a mystery? I
1: think we're going to let it be a mystery. I mean, we all love the answers, don't we? I mean, I often, I shouldn't say this, but when we do archaeology, I say it's making up stories. <laughs> and These people were here, what, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago? Um, We who watch TV, who live in houses with lights, um, who drive around in cars can't even begin to imagine what it was like to never know any of that. And just to be here and paddle up and down the river, see the moon on these white shells. I mean, part of one of the things that was fascinating was just the whiteness of them. No, I don't think. I think we can look at them in ways that are more powerful for the people whose remains these are. And that I like the idea of a lot.
2: Of the two giant shell piles on the two sides of the river, there's actually only one left today. The whaleback midden on the east side of the river was actually the bigger of the two. It's the one whose remains I visited and that you can still visit today. But it's mostly gone. It was mined for chicken feed and fertilizer in 1886. It was during this mining operation that the colonials, without anyone's permission, unearthed the remains of people. An archaeologist was hired to keep track of artifacts and human remains that were found in the pile. But after the first year of mining, this shell heap that might have taken more than a 1,000 years to amass was almost entirely gone. But the good news is, we still haven't destroyed the other pile, the smaller one on the other side of the river, the Glidden Midden.
3: You can see across the way here, that's the Glidden Shell Heap Midden, and that's eroding very badly. It's lost a couple of yards so every time the, we get a super high tide it moves stuff from the bottom and stuff falls down the, the face of the midden.
2: One of the biggest middens in the country, one of the most remarkable monuments to native heritage is washing away. And this is not just the story along the Damariscotta River. Shell middens are everywhere in coastal spots. There are thousands of them in Maine alone, and by their very nature, they are at risk from rising seas, so when they disappear, the fog of time gets thicker, more impenetrable, and for the descendants of the people who lived in this place, like Chris Sokalexis from the Penobscot, it's tough to know how to feel about this.
4: It is disheartening to see some midden,s you know, being washed away, but talking with with certain elders, you know, they they were there for a purpose, and if they're getting washed away, they serve their purpose, and we, you know it's no longer needed. Um, yeah, I understand that logic, um, but as as an archaeologist, it's it's tough to accept. <laughs> I walk a fine line between tradition and science, and it's sometimes it's it's tough. Um, sometimes you have to choose a side. I try to stay right down the middle as best I can, but. Um, you know, it's it's just really tough to uh, to live that dichotomy.
2: Inside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans Brown, and Logan Shannon, with help from Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, Molly Donahue, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Special thanks to Peter Noyes and Jesse Ferriera of the Damariscotta River Association that's the land trust that owns and maintains the Glidden and Whaleback Midden sites. Also, thanks to the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University for letting us use their photos of the mining operation at the Whaleback site. And also, thanks to Professor Joe Hall of Bates College. Just as a matter of pure coincidence, the Peabody will be putting some of the artifacts from Whaleback on display starting Saturday, June 3rd, if you're interested in seeing them. Or if you want to see what the heck the midden looks like today, because it is really hard to picture, you can head over to our website, OutsideInRadio.org, where we have lots of beautiful contemporary and historical photos. Seriously, check it out. We featured music today by Sometimes Why, Velea Velea, Poddington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, and Ari De Niro. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.